Welcome to Maintenance Phase, where you get a lawsuit. You get a lawsuit. <laughs> Everybody gets a lawsuit. <laughs> That's very good, Aubrey. Thank you also for not doing the voice. Oh, that was a good, you're that was welcome. a long-term choice. Uh, you are Michael Hobbs. You are Aubrey Gordon. And today, Michael, Aubrey. we are taking up the thrilling conclusion of our uh, story about Oprah v. the Cattlemen's Association. Is that right? Oprah versus Beef. Yes. Uh, so where are we diving in? Well, why don't you do a little previously on, Aubrey? Because it's it hasn't been that long for us, but for listeners, it's been two weeks. So uh, when last we left Oprah, she had aired an episode about mad cow disease. Mm-hmm. And she had said things like, this has freaked me out enough that I'm not going to eat another burger again. And yep. these cattle ranchers argued that this took a, uh, this led to a massive hit in their sales. Yes. So they sued her under Texas's ag gag law. Sirloin slander. She and her team decided that it was important to take it seriously so that she didn't mm-hmm. get hit with wave after wave of lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And as part of taking it seriously, she hired a jury consultant named Dr. Phil. Mr. Dr. Reverend Phil. Yes. Great. The third. So a little bit of timeline. March of 1996 is when Britain reports the first human cases of mad cow disease. April of 1996 is when Oprah does her fateful Dangerous Foods episode. May of 1996 is when the cattlemen sue her for the baffling sum of $12 million. Throughout the course of 1996, they're doing, you know, this like pre-trial stuff. They're like the motion to do this and the motion to do that. And they're like arguing over like technical stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's not until January of 1998 that the trial actually starts. It's wild how goddamn long. It's weird. I know. <laughs> Trials and the legal system take. Like, I absolutely remember this from organizing days when people would be like, we just need to take it to the Supreme Court yeah. and they'll overturn the whole thing. And I'm like, cool. Hang out for like a decade. I actually remember this growing up. Do you remember growing up that Oprah actually filmed her show in Texas for six weeks? No, I don't remember this. So this is one of the weirdest footnotes to the story that Oprah was under contract to produce a certain number of shows per year. So she couldn't just like take time off and go be on trial in Texas. So they they rented out the largest theater in Amarillo, Texas, and like did her show there. So every day for six weeks, she would be in trial, like in a courtroom all day. And then at night, she would go straight to this theater and film an episode of Oprah. God. And it was really weird because the judge imposed a gag order. Oprah was not allowed to say anything, even like tangentially related to any of the issues that came up in the trial. And like she constantly made jokes about this on TV. She's like, you're going to tell a talk show host not to say anything. Like this kind of became a running joke. So there's these like genuinely like pretty funny and charming clips of her interviewing celebrities. Like there's one where she's talking to Patrick Swayze and he's telling some story and he's like, da, 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 I was driving around, I ate a hamburger. And then Oprah sort of like leans into the microphone and she's like, I have no opinion about hamburgers. <laughs> I have none, no thoughts in my brain about beef. Sure. This is the Jay Leno Conan O'Brien of its day. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. no one's saying anything, but everything's kind of about it. Right. Also, I just looked up the population of Amarillo, Texas in 1998 was 170,000 people. Yeah, it's a very small city. It's a small city and Oprah is in it in 1998 at the height of her powers. It's also very ironic because the lawyers for the cattlemen deliberately chose Amarillo as a venue to fuck over Oprah, right? Because this is a town whose almost their entire economy depends on beef, the largest Employer is a slaughterhouse. 25% of the country's cattle is produced like in this region. And Amarillo is kind of like a hub for the entire industry. So like the population of people there and like the jury pool is all like super pro beef. So it's actually like pretty fucked up. Yeah. But it also speaks to Oprah's power because she's so popular and her popularity transcends all kinds of lines of like race and ethnicity and age and class that she goes down there. And pretty soon there's a line 
around the block starting at 4 a.m. to get tickets to her show. Yeah. And like she becomes this like really celebrated figure. So apparently there's this like dueling battle of bumper stickers that people will have bumper stickers on their car that are like Amarillo hearts Oprah. And then people are also putting bumper stickers on their car that say the only mad cow in Amarillo is Oprah. Holy shit. Ooh, getting into some uh, deeper, deeper topics there. Uh, calling a black woman a mad cow. Uh, yeah, good look God. It does appear to be the case that overwhelmingly like public opinion eventually swung toward Oprah over the course of the six weeks. This is like when a celebrity shows up in Portland, Oregon, and everyone loses their minds. It's like when people from Seattle pretend that Tom Skerritt is a celebrity. <laughs> Ooh, Tom Skerritt lives here. Like, no one knows who that is. If you're not in Seattle, it's fine. We used to have the Everclear guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also want to read some of the... The either great or terrible headlines coming out of this trial, depending on your perspective, that this, as we discussed last episode, this is like the height of bad dad puns. So there's, of course, Cattlemen Have Cow over Oprah Show. Mm -hmm. Classic. Is there a move over? No, this is the one I wanted to do. This is the one I feel like they're leaving it on the table. Really? You got to have a moo one. Cattlemen have bad motivations in suing Oprah. Love it. There's also... Oprah, comma, cattlemen lock horns. Good. Texas jury hears meaty libel case. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I feel like maybe the best one I saw is it just says a lot at stake. <laughs> and it's S-T-E-A-K, <laughs> which is pretty good. That's really, I enjoyed the steak. <laughs> There's an editorial in the Tennessean that says beef against Oprah is a case of baloney. <laughs> which, uh, I don't know. Baloney isn't like made of beef, I don't think. So I don't know if it works literally. Who knows what baloney's made of? And then the best academic article about this I saw was called Apocalypse Cow. (laughs) Also quite good. God, that would be great anywhere, but especially in an academic setting. I love it when academics are like, fuck it, I'm going in. (laughs) And then I am also going to send you one of the richest fucking texts I've ever seen. This is from the Kitty Kelly biography of Oprah. If it wasn't you, we wouldn't be talking about this. But I think that this is going to make you melt down. You're like maybe the only person who when you say, I'm going to send you something and it's going to make you melt down. I'm like, yeah, like, ooh, going in. Let's go. Uh, Okay. The female judge refused to allow women to wear pants in her courtroom, so Oprah wore a skirt every day. 1996. It's not, 19, it's not 1951, it's 1996. Quote, I love the fact that no cameras were allowed in the courtroom, she said. Those artist renderings made me look skinny. Mm-hmm. Even with her trainer and chef in tow, she still battled her weight, at least for the first few days. Then she said she gave herself over to, quote, Jesus and the comfort of pie. That's the title of my memoir, by the way. <laughs> she gained 22 pounds during the six-week trial. Quote, my trainer, Bob Green, was very upset with me. He said, it's like you gained it and you're very proud of it. I'd say, yes, I ate pie. I ate pie. And we had macaroni and cheese with seven different cheeses. Her co-defendant, Howard Lyman, a cattle rancher turned vegetarian, was not allowed to mention weight or food to her. Quote, her attorneys told me I couldn't talk to her about her diet during the trial. They felt she was under enough pressure. What are your thoughts? What kind of fucking gremlin? I know. Is like, oh, Oprah Winfrey, here's my chance to tell this lady about diets. It's very clear from what Oprah says about this later that like this is a huge source of anxiety for her. This is the first time she had been sued in this way. I I think she was kind of waking up to the fact of like how big of a deal she was and the fact that she was now going to become a target for these kinds of lawsuits. And it, it appears that she was very nervous about losing. Yeah. But then because she's a public figure and a woman and a black woman, she has this extra layer of anxiety on top of it of like, oh my God, what if I gain weight? Yeah, totally. Which is just such a fucking weird thing to throw in there. And also the fact that she did gain weight and it ends up in her fucking biography. Yeah. It's just wild to me how much that has become like sometimes by her own sort of bringing it up sometimes not 
how much that has become just a baked in part of her story, right? right? That like people are currently pretty incapable of talking about Oprah without talking about her body. Yeah. I feel similarly about the lawsuit as I do about the body stuff, which is essentially like no matter how much of either of those things you get, it's never not going to be stressful. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. And the idea that on top of all of that stress, you also need to be like, extremely assiduous about what you eat is yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. jesus christ although I'm, I'm glad that she was able to have pie and like let go of this for a little while it seems like she like deserves it that mac and cheese sounds good normalize it normalize <laughs> pie and seven cheeses yeah so the trial starts in january of 1998 they are suing her under the texas perishable foods act this is one of these veggie libel laws that passes in this wave of legislation that happens in the early 1990s. It's the mm-hmm. first time this law has ever been used. So it's kind of a test case for this Texas veggie libel law and a test case for kind of like these these laws writ large, right? Because they've been on the books for five years now and they've never been used. So the, the, the country's legal establishment is watching this to see whether it works and whether like these laws could potentially be overturned. It seems like the highest stakes possible test litigation. Oh, yeah. If you're going to sue Oprah. So to find Oprah guilty, the lawyers have to prove that Oprah and Howard, this is in the law, they have to have stated or implied that a perishable food product was not safe for consumption for the public. Mm. So they cite Oprah's comment that this has put me off eating another burger. Mm. One of the claims they're contesting is just four words long, feeding cows to cows. (laughs) They also focus on Howard's comparison of the U.S. to the U.K. Mm. This is from the eventual appeal that is filed years later. It says... Branding Lyman an extremist, the cattleman cite two of his inflammatory statements during the April 16th Oprah Winfrey show. First, the cattleman challenge as patently false Lyman's assertion that mad cow disease could make AIDS look like the common cold. Hmm. Second, they maintain that Lyman falsely accused the United States of treating mad cow as a public relations issue as Great Britain did and failing to take any substantial measures to prevent a mad cow outbreak in this country. Mm-hmm. They're also suing over the editing. This is actually really interesting. They're saying that the show was deceptively edited because as we talked about last episode, they did in fact have like a, a somewhat independent USDA genuine expert on mad cow disease. And they cut his appearance from eight minutes down to 37 seconds. Hmm. As an audio editor, like <laughs> I I actually agree with the concept that you could very easily libel somebody with editing. <laughs> no question. So Listen, easy. Michael, you do it to me every <laughs> <Yeah>. show. <laughs> well, we had, I don't know if you remember this, right? Like very, very early in the show, we had like a, a rough cut. We were sort of taking apart pieces of the episode and putting it back together. And there was a point where there were some like artifacts of the previous edit. And I said at one point, I was like, well, that is why so many kids like die in road accidents in America. And then you cackled for like two minutes, <laughs> which was just like it, it was like I had cut out something else there, like a joke. But because I had like children dying and then you laughing, it was like, wow, wow Aubrey's a monster. This is also Michael. I'm so glad you bring this up. We're now back in Bachelor Land. This is yeah, what the yeah, Bachelor yeah, yeah, yeah. does all the damn time. You got a villain edit in your yeah. season, but they want to bring you back as the Bachelor. Congratulations. You're going on Bachelor in Paradise. You're about to be- get the best edit possible. Yeah. Nick Vile. This is yeah. why I'm so nervous about people having parasocial relationships with us because I, I keep wanting to stress that like I'm a normal person who's like a dick sometimes and I don't yeah. want you to experience that as a betrayal. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> like, right. No, Mike, Mike has bad takes and is sometimes a prick. <laughs> Podcasters. They're just like us. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so... The lawsuit is mostly over these false claims, and it it really rests on this claim that Howard Lyman made that America is treating mad cow disease like Britain, right? It's Mm. basically treating it like a public relations issue rather than like a public health issue. So for you and I to adjudicate whether this claim has any merit, we need to talk for the next two hours about the history of mad cow disease. Delightful. Can't wait. 
Rotting brains, let's go. Speaking of which, what do you remember about mad cow, like just as a as a disease, as a condition from last week? What I remember is feeling very upset by the effects of it's it. Very it's very upsetting. Really Subjectively upsetting. upsetting. It essentially like creates holes in your brain. Am I remembering yeah. that right? Yep. Yeah. The actual name of it is bovine spongiform encephalopathy. Sp- Spongiform. Yeah, and that's because it like your brain looks like a fucking sponge. Yes, it's disgusting. I under it, that's a very, very effective name. It's very gross. in terms of conveying what happens, mm-hmm. uh, and that it's like degenerative and pretty rapidly degenerative. Is that right? Yeah. So it's it lives in your body for a very long incubation period of years, and then <sighs> you're dead within a year. Yeah, that seems horrible. So the weird thing about this condition is that. It takes place in almost all mammal species. Oh. So you can find it in like minks and in elks, it's called chronic wasting disease. In sheep, it's called scrapie, <laughs> which is a great disease name. I like diseases that sound like diseases. That sounds like cropsy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That sounds like an urban legend bad guy. In humans, it's called Creutzfeldt Jacob disease. There are these little things in your like nerve cells, mostly in your brain and your spine called prions. And we don't really know what they do. The The current theory apparently is that they like help your brain communicate with itself and communicate with your nervous system. Mm. But they're all over the place and they kind of propagate themselves by like folding. They're like constantly folding into these like three-dimensional shapes. And every once in a while, this is extremely rare, they get like an error message. Like a little 404 and they like fuck up and then they like fold in on themselves and like capture the little error message and start repeating the error message. Holy the, shit. The, the kind of traditional version of it is called like spontaneous Creutzfeldt-Jacob disease. And like it just fucking happens in your brain and then it starts like propagating itself and then you start to get these awful symptoms which are very similar to dementia at first. And so it mostly happens in older people. The median age of onset is 66. Mm. The bad news is mm. that there's no way of testing for it before you get symptoms and there's no treatment for it. Ooh. But the, the good news is that it's, it's very difficult to spread. So, you know, it's not airborne. It, it doesn't come out in your poo or your pee or any of your fluids. Like it's once one person gets it. They just sort of get it spontaneously and then they die. Jesus. There, there's God. a couple instances of cannibal tribes Ooh. like getting it where like you can spread it from one person to the other if you're like eating someone else's brain. But again, it's, you know, it's fairly rare behavior in mammals yeah. to like eat an entire carcass of another thing. So luckily it can't really become a pandemic. It's just like something unbelievably unfortunate that like happens to an individual basically. Yeah. But what is important about the mad cow outbreak of 1996 specifically is that it had never been seen in cows before. So we knew that it was in sheep. We also knew that humans cannot get it from sheep. Humans can eat the meat. Humans don't eat a lot of sheep brains. But apparently even if you do, humans don't get it from sheep and other animals don't get it from sheep. Interesting. So the first case that is documented in a cow is in 1986 – in the UK. This this cow was acting really weird and like cows cows haven't really done this before. Like cows can get rabies apparently, but like rabies has very specific symptoms and a farmer's like, "Uh, oh, these this doesn't really seem like rabies." And eventually somebody tests the brain of the cow after it dies and is like, "Oh, this is spongy as fuck. Like I think we have a new thing on our hands." Mm. And then after they identify the first couple cases, they start like testing for it more widely. And, like, it's just galloping throughout the cattle industry. So by the end of 1988, there's 95 confirmed cases on 80 farms. By 1989, there's 2,200 cases. By 1990, there's 10,000 cases. And by 1991, there's 24,000 cases. Good God. There are many, many, many things written about the botched UK government response to the mad cow epidemic. And, like, I, I read... Three books about this. I read the parliamentary inquiry that is eventually published about like every single step along the way that like they fucked up. So the first thing that the British government fucked up in responding to this is they realized what they had on their hands in March of 1987, but they didn't announce it until May. Mm. So like this was spreading within the cow population and like they didn't tell farmers, like they didn't tell people that this was happening basically. Yeah, that stuff is always so 
tricky, right? The like, you don't want people to panic, but also yeah. like withholding information seems like a real bad practice. So fairly early, like almost immediately, the UK government figures out that like this has to be spreading through cows eating cow brains. Like that's the only way we know that animals can get this is eating their own species brains and like spinal cords and shit. And so like they look around the cattle industry and they're like, oh, yeah, it's a fairly common practice for mm. cattle to be ground up and turned into this like bone meal protein stuff that they give other cows. So it's like they, they know relatively quickly like how this is spreading. So it's not until June of 1988, nearly two years after they find the first case, that they ban the practice of feeding bone meal to cows. Mm. And they this is so baffling to me. They give them a grace period. So they announce it in June, but they're like, oh, you don't have to implement it until like five weeks later in July. But like this is this is like poisonous, like they're feeding poisonous <laughs> food to other cows. It feels a little bit like the time when uh very early on in the COVID-19 pandemic when people were like, oh, N95 masks don't even work. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was just so that there were enough for healthcare providers versus being like, hey, <sighs> it's know. most important that the people who are exposed to this the most have the protection that they need. So we're putting them over here, right? Like yeah. this feels like it's in the same neighborhood of like, yeah. boy, I see how you got here, but like, reorganize your principles yeah. here reorganize your priorities this is not the way to do it there's also a weird naivete about how farmers are going to react to this so they basically in 1988 tell farmers like you can't use this stuff anymore right it's mm. it's poison don't feed it to your cows anymore but they don't give them any compensation what so the farmers are like well i've spent tens of thousands of pounds on food like cows need a lot of food this is like a, a, a fairly sizable industry this like protein meal that they're making and it's like oh yeah like all of that is worthless bye yeah and famously a pretty low margin business mm -hmm. for farmers and ranchers like they're not exactly like making bank it also just like totally destroyed trust between the government and the farmers because the farmers were like well fuck you you're just telling me not to use this stuff yeah, yeah, and like yeah. you're not giving me any compensation it feels really insulting so a lot of the farmers just kept using it until their supplies were gone. And this is another super duper botched government response thing. The UK government didn't ban exports. What? Of the bone meal. So this is another thing that like they're selling it to like French farmers, Swiss farmers, Belgian farmers. This is like part of the industry. So like all of the cases of mad cow that we get in Europe in the early years of this are from like French cows eating British Bone meal. Oh, <laughs> interesting. They also fucked up the compensation in telling farmers to destroy their herds as well. So the government bans all this poisonous food. They also mm. tell farmers that they have to kill any cows that have like symptoms of mad cow. But they have this whole compensation scheme where any cow that you kill, like a normal cow, they pay you. 100% of the value of the cow. However, mm. if the cow has mad cow disease, they only pay you 50% of the value of the cow. What? The logic, I guess, is like, well, it has mad cow, so like it's worth less, so we shouldn't be paying as much. But the problem is, as soon as farmers start to see symptoms in their cows of mad cow disease, they kill the cow and grind it up and put it in the food. Right, <laughs> right. They slaughter it, they sell it, they get rid of it because it's about to lose half of its fucking value. I remember uh, growing up, like my dad's a pilot and he would talk about uh, how if you had a mental health diagnosis on the books, you would be mm. grounded as a pilot. You couldn't fly. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So you just don't get diagnosed. Right. Which yeah. just meant there were like a bunch of people with like untreated and undiagnosed yeah, 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 mental yeah. illnesses. And it just sort of disincentivized like a generation or more of pilots from yeah. like seeking mental health care that they may have really needed. Yeah, it's super predictable. I mean, this is like really 101 stuff. Yeah. The one non-botched government response that they did is they also assign researchers to find out how this started. Mm. So there's actually like a fairly interesting mystery that they have to figure out. Ooh. They know that Mad cow disease is spreading through this practice of grinding up cows and feeding it to other cows. Cows eat cow brains. That's how they get mad cow, right? They know that's happening. However, mm. this practice is very widespread. 
like America does it, every country in Europe does it. This is like a pretty well entrenched part of the cattle industry by this point. And in Britain, they've been doing this since the 1920s. This is actually like something that <laughs> that like Oprah is kind of reacting to and like the rest of the public is reacting to. It's yeah. like, oh, we're doing this regularly? Yeah. And the whole cattle industry is like, yeah, you, you don't want to think about like the conditions under which your beef is produced. But like, yeah, there's a lot of like waste products when you kill a cow and like we're going to try to do something yeah. with those waste products. Yep. So it's like, okay, well, then why is Mad Cow happening in Britain and why is it happening now? So this is actually pretty interesting. They managed to triangulate the source of the outbreak based on all these like incubation periods mm. and when the cows are getting it, where the cows are getting it. They trace it back to the winter of 1981 to 1982. Huh. Something changed in that winter to start spreading mad cow throughout the cow population. Hmm. So there's a couple different factors that appear to have led to this. The first is the increasing use of this bone meal protein stuff that basically cows need a lot of protein to grow up and get like big muscles. This is like just like human beings. We all need protein. Hmm. And this is one of the cheap ways to produce protein is like grind up meal and like feed it to cows. And so there's a weird thing that like the price of like soybeans and other, you know, quote unquote, natural forms of protein spiked that winter. Hmm. So in the winter of 1981, the percentage of like cow feed that was this bone meal went from 1% to 5%, which was the highest in Europe. No other country was using that much bone meal. There was also a change in the way that they create bone meal. So... I don't know if this is a trigger warning, but if you're eating right now, stop eating. This is like, uh, this Listen, is so gross. Listen, if you've been eating beef in particular for any of this, maybe... Yeah, ma maybe hold Maybe off. finish your lunch and then <laughs> then come back to us in a couple hours. This is so fucking gross, Aubrey, but we have to uh -oh. talk about it. So the way that this bone meal protein stuff works is they basically take like cow carcasses and oftentimes they'll throw in other animals too, like other sort of farm animals that are around they grind them all up into this kind of like slop. Mm. And so there's all these industrial processes to separate the fat in that slop from the protein. And what's super weird is the, the fat part is actually very valuable. This is like beef tallow. And it's like an industrial additive that like they use it in cosmetics. They use it in like printing money. Like it's part of plastics. I believe uh, famously it was what gave McDonald's fries their flavor yeah. for years and years and years, right? This is like a, a, a very refined industrial process to like separate out the constituent parts of this like gross animal slop. Mm. And as the industry was getting bigger and consolidating, especially in the 1970s in Britain, they switched from creating this bone meal in batches, like you do a bunch of tons of it at once, to doing it continuously. So they have like a conveyor belt that does it just all the time. Mm. And as part of that process, they weren't heating the bone meal up as high. So it used to be that they were heating it to like 220 degrees and that dropped to like 180 degrees or something like that. They just weren't getting it up to as high temperatures and keeping it at those high temperatures for as long when they switched to this new process. Uh -huh. There was also a really interesting change in processing that it used to be that, you know, because tallow is so much more valuable than this like protein shit – they would use chemical solvents. So after they heated it up, they would blast it with these like weird chemicals to kind of dissolve the fat and then they could mm. reconstitute it through other chemical processes later. But the industry started increasingly relying on that in the 1970s. And then there were some like really grisly fires and explosions at these rendering plants because the solvents that they were using were extremely dangerous. Boy, oh boy. So as like an occupational health and safety thing, they phased out these solvents. I will say I'm glad to hear that part. I feel generally wary of conversations about like the gross nature of food production, mm -hmm. not because we shouldn't, those aren't things we should talk about, but because it so quickly tips into like that bread is made out of the same thing as yoga mats are made out of yeah, 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 yeah. sort of sensationalized claims that are designed to squick people out and make them think that their food is dangerous mm -hmm. when like water is a thing that's used in making bread and yoga mats, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are plenty of things that sort of go in both categories categories 
But from an occupational safety standpoint, that feels like a place where we are generally like asleep at the wheel as consumers, right? Like yeah. there's like very little discussion of like, what is the safety of farm workers picking your yeah. vegetables and fruits? What is the safety level of folks who are sort of working on this process? So I'm like very glad to hear that the occupational safety part sort of wins the day. It's a really weird, like, perfect storm of, like, mm. the price of international, like, fish meal production went up and they reduced the heat by, like, a little bit in these processes and the protein that they were feeding the cows went from, like, 5% fat to 12% fat. Ooh. And, like, none of these things on their own seem like that big of a deal. Right. Yeah. They're like little tweaks. OK, like these are the little things that happen in industrial processes all the time. And like none of us ever find out. about. Yeah. It is like, oh, OK, just like a little a little tiny practice. that doesn't really make any big difference. But all of these things together, because the heat wasn't as high and fat protects microorganisms from heat. So the fat produced a barrier around like the protein stuff that meant that it it wasn't getting heated to the same temperatures. Mm. So basically there was some process in place to destroy all of the prions and like it just fell below the threshold at which it could get rid of all the prions and it left a couple of the prions in the little like protein cakes. Mm. Also, these cakes sound fucking disgusting. Apparently, I, I read a really good book called Deadly Feasts by Roger Rhodes about like how all of this happened and he described them as scab colored oh. and said that they just like smell like a dead body. So just like fucking gross, these like little patty cakes of like flesh stuff that you feed to fucking cows. I really love that a running theme of this show is you being like, these are the things that are too gross for me and I can't I talk about it. And then you bring episodes. <laughs> and then I share them and then I have to tell shit. other people about them to share my grossed outness. It's, well, and then you get like a wave for however long of like social media response yeah, yeah, and yeah, further yeah. prompts or like check this out. Yeah, totally. totally. Yeah. It's a very particular hell of your own making, bud. So basically by the 1980s, they've kind of figured out what happened. There's still it's actually very interesting. There's still debate about where like the first case came from. So mm. one theory, the theory in the parliamentary inquiry is that just like a cow got it one day, the same way humans do. Mm. It's like prions are like doing their little folds. And then there's like a little 404 that gets folded into the cow brain and the cow gets ground up and fed to other cows and so on. Right. That's mm. one theory. The other theory is that it was a variant of scrapey oh. that because it was relatively widespread in sheep, and everyone thought that other animals couldn't get it from sheep. They mm. were grinding up sheep in these, like, sheep parts in this slop stuff, too. Mm. And that's how it got into the feed for the cows. So that is still a mystery, like, the actual origin point, like, the big bang of all of this. But once you start having these, like, diseased cow brains in the food, because you've had so much industrial consolidation, you're making this in like huge batches, right? Mm -hmm. So one infected cow goes into like a huge batch and then gets spread out to like hundreds of farms. So that's how this ended up spreading like underneath everybody's radar throughout the entire country in the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. So what Howard Lyman said on Oprah that everyone's going to fight about in Texas in another decade is that the British government essentially treated this as a public relations problem and not as like a threat to human health. And that is on some level true because mm. before this, there had never been a case where a version of mad cow had spread from animals to humans. Hmm. It is true that like when you look at the government response, the government was basically seeing this as like an animal disease and was trying to protect the British cattle industry. Mm. But they weren't doing this. It's, it's not like there was some like flashing red light, like this is about to jump to humans at any time. There were yeah, actual yeah. scientists and like specialists in this who were like, no, no, we've been eating sheep with scrapey for centuries. We've never gotten scrapey in humans. Right. So they're calibrated to like completely the wrong scale of thinking yeah. and they're approaching 
an incomplete list of like institutions that need to be engaged and all kinds of stuff. Right. Like, so if you're focused on the wrong problem from jump or a small fraction of the total problem from jump, like, of course you're going to come up with solutions that don't fix the whole thing. If you don't know the whole thing exists. Yeah. Like given the information that they had at the time, this really wasn't on anybody's radar. And there was, this is like one of the most fucked up things I've ever read in 1985. There, there were also all these other studies where people had kind of tried spreading prions from like one species to another or even within the same species. So in 1985, there's an article on like cannibal hamsters where they what? feed hamsters hamster brains what? and they didn't get like hamster spongiform encephalitis. When you say, ca- hang on, we got to unpack cannibal hamsters. <laughs> you I don't know. get to I just my skate by cannibal hamsters. I'm assuming that this is a lab experiment, right? Yeah, 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 where yeah, hamsters yeah. are being yeah. fed. There's not like a subset of hamsters that are like <laughs> Hannibal hamsters. Hamsters. <laughs> there was a plane crash and the hamsters had to resort to eating one another. That makes more sense to me. And I feel uh, relieved and very sad for those hamsters that got fed hamster brains. That seems really disturbing. But glad to know that I can just love my unproblematic fave hamsters again. But yeah, at, at the time, the conventional wisdom was that like, even if cows were eating cow brains, you would need like a lot of brain material for this Mm. to spread from one animal to the other. And for whatever reason, that turns out not to be true for cows. Mm. So there's this big freak out in the 1980s, but it hasn't really crossed over to the public yet. There's news stories. It's a big deal, but it's kind of cast as like an agricultural issue, right? Like there's this weird disease in cows, But the public isn't super duper tracking this. So after this initial flurry, a couple years go by. And then in 1990, there is a cat named Max who dies of mad cow disease. Okay. It appears that the cat became infected from eating cat food that had like ground up cow brains in it. Oh my God. And it's... First of all, it's like kind of scary that mad cow is spreading from one species to another, which like they said couldn't happen, right? And then also there's like, just like Oprah, Mm. you're like, oh wait, we're all eating fucking cow brains? Totally. Hang on. Totally. (laughs) It's like gross to think about. (laughs) Cat food, didn't see it coming, but of course. This kicks off a much larger wave of panic than there had been just when, like, cows had it. This is also when we actually get the coining of the term mad cow, which was something the British tabloids came up with. It has British tabloid written all over it. That is for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. It also fits very well in headlines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's, what's amazing to me, right, is the British tabloids, who you know I hate with, like, the depths of my heart. Like, I loathe British tabloids. Yes. But this is a very weird case for me because you know i've I've looked into a million moral panics at this point and they all have kind of like the same structure of you know this, especially this tabloid media like whipping up a bunch of fears about something that is fake right mm. the british tabloids at this time start whipping up a panic about mad cow and they're like it could spread to humans and like they're fucking right <laughs> uh, but this is like a stopped clock is right twice a day it's right like so fully funny to me by accident slash like compulsive sensationalization of things that they hit on this not because they're like observing anything yeah. right and they're they're quoting these like crank doctors who are like the the medical establishment doesn't want you to know which is true <laughs> That's accurate. Like the medical establishment was like super head in the sand about the possibility of this spreading to humans. And like the government at this point started doing all kinds of like PR shit. Like uh, the minister of agriculture went on TV and fed his daughter a hamburger (laughs) as like a PR move to be like, look how safe the beef is. Like everyone should stop slandering beef. And like his daughter's fine. It's all fine. But like it was true that the government was doing, like, I wouldn't say a cover-up, but the government was definitely doing a lot of, like, pro-beef propaganda at the time. God, I just feel like our next episode, you're going to be like, there was a Bat Boy, and he did escape from a Chicago lab. This is what's so funny, is because 
Like, this has all of the hallmarks of a moral panic, right? If you looked at this structurally, right, there's, like, some pseudoscience stuff. There's, like, taking, you know, a small number of cases and blowing them up into these disaster scenarios. But, like, it happened. <laughs> it then yeah. happens. So <laughs> for the first time ever, kudos to the Daily Mail for getting it right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's bleak. Yeah. So then a couple more years go by. After the, the cat-cow panic kind of dies down, we then get to 1993, which is when the first human cases start to show up. So there's a farmer who one of his cows had been diagnosed with mad cow and like he ended up mm. slaughtering a bunch of his cows early. Ooh. And then he starts getting this like weird dementia and people are like, uh, this feels weird. But to my knowledge, that has never actually been confirmed as a case of mad cow. It could be and it could just be like a really unlucky guy who happened to get dementia really early. We don't know yet. Boy, oh boy. I had an encounter a couple weeks ago with someone who was like, I had COVID before they knew what it was. Uh, and yeah. I was like, oh, in like January or something. And this person was like, no, in like 2017. And I was like, oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> No, it hadn't leaked from the lab yet. Yeah, yeah. Lab. Also in 1993, there's a little girl named Vicky Rimmer who starts getting these weird symptoms at the age of 15. And like her grandmother, this is actually a really interesting example of like something that is usually bad, but is true in this case. Her grandmother had been reading the tabloids and her grandmother was like, I think this is mad cow. And she goes to the tabloids and the tabloids are like mad cow and little girl. And start whipping up panic. Again, in, under any other circumstance, I'd be like, this is very irresponsible. But it's fucking true. It has now been confirmed that this little girl had mad cow. Boy, oh boy. In 1994, there's a 15-year-old girl who has it. In 1995, there's another teenager who has it. And so after a couple of these cases start trickling out, it becomes clear that something is happening. And so on March 20th, 1996... The British government announces that there have been 10 cases of human mad cow disease. Do they have any sense of why so many teenagers? It's actually, to this day, it's not clear. There appears to be some weird, like, genetic marker hmm. that makes some people susceptible to it and not others. But it's it's not clear to me why it's happening in children. Although the median age of these 10 cases is 28. Mm. It's also really interesting. I actually spent like a long time trying to figure out like where these cases originated, right? Like what did they eat to give them mad cow, right? But like you can't really trace it back because it's been seven years since these people ate the contaminated beef. Right. We've talked on the show about like how bad people are at self-reporting data of like what they ate today. Like, <laughs> then add seven years. It's yeah. not getting better. And it's like the only thing you could even do to investigate is like, well, did you eat beef between like 1987 and 1989? Mm. <laughs> like, that's as good as you can yeah. do. And this incubation period also foments another like much more mainstream wave of panic. I mean, this is when Oprah finds out about it. This is when the rest of the world finds out about it. I mean, this mm. is a huge deal that it's like, okay, there's tainted beef that has a 100% fatality rate. Like, eight years later. <laughs> like, that's oh, fucking boy. terrifying. Yeah, totally. This is also when we get the, the, you know, of course, the tabloids now go into overdrive and there's various predictions of how many people will die. The highest estimate is 500,000 people. Jesus God. Eventually, it's it's 177 people. So, like, this, <laughs> this model is, like, way fucking out there. But it's like, yeah, you start counting up the number of people who eat beef. Yeah, totally, totally. This is when, like, the rest of the world kind of, like, kicks into action. There's something very funny that the EU has a ban on British beef in place for 10 years. But even after they lift it, France just keeps the ban in place, like, informally, <laughs> even though that's illegal <laughs> under, like, EU rules. France is like, no, 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 we got, we, we've got problems with the British. <laughs> We're going to keep this. feels very <laughs> France. <Yeah. laughs> just like, we feel like it. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, fuck it. We're just not going <laughs> to tell you guys about it. We never liked you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so we're now going to do back to Amarillo, Texas. Uh -huh. It's January 1998 again. Mm. It's a weird timeline because the mad cow panic in America really like peaked 
1996 when Oprah was doing her episode and then fell pretty quickly, mm. right? Once people figured out that like there had never been a case of mad cow in America and there was no human case of mad cow in America ever either. Mm. And like this remained an extremely British phenomenon. Like to this day, it's like, you know, 140,000 cattle in Britain were diagnosed with mad cow. And in, in Portugal, it's like 200. In mm. France, it's like 150. It's like really isolated outside of Britain. So by the time the trial starts, like almost two years later, the country's kind of over mad cow. Right. And if it's unique to this one sort of industry in yeah. this one country, then like you figure out like if you're not living in the UK, right? Mm -hmm. Like you figure out that you can sort of like let go of some of that anxiety. So the trial itself begins. Oprah and Howard Lyman both eventually end up taking the stand. Oprah testified for three days. Mm. I couldn't find trial transcripts, which is really annoying. I wanted to like do like a dramatic reading of the testimony. All I know is from what has been included in like the appeals and the various court decisions and media reports. Howard Lyman says the first question they asked him when he got onto the stand was like, are you a vegetarian? Yes or no? What? Like they were, they were casting him as like an animal rights extremist. It's like they're playing to the Amarillo crowd. Yeah, totally. Aha. But then, okay, I'm just going to like spoil this. They really never had a chance of winning this lawsuit. Really? They have to prove a series of things to win the lawsuit. So a lot of the trial rests on the fact that Oprah, like her show, caused this huge drop in cattle prices in April of 1996. Uh -huh. The prosecution calls like traders – they call an economist who's like, I see no other structural reasons why the price of beef would have fallen at that time. But then it's really hard to prove this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like why does the price of a commodity fall at a particular time? Well, is Oprah's show in there? Maybe. But to get damages, they have to show that she was basically single-handedly responsible for it. And cattle prices were down for 11 weeks. So somehow they have to prove that Oprah's show was like so powerful yeah. that people stopped eating beef for three months. Yeah, totally. Like, honestly, I buy it. Oprah was extremely influential at that time. I actually do too, honestly. Yeah. But like to prove it again, this is like part of what we come up against in nutrition research all the time, right? In order to prove this thing, you have to rule out every other possible yeah. thing that could cause this. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be really hard to do when there is like a legitimate public health issue at play. Yeah. People are getting this news from more than just Oprah. So you have to yeah. prove it was Oprah and not 60 minutes or good morning America or the today show or whoever else covered it. This right? is what's so weird to me is like, if you Google around, you can find a bunch of articles from the time being like, could Mad Cow happen here? You know, some of them are more responsible than others. But like panic about Mad Cow spreading to the U.S. was very widespread. It's something the entire media was doing. It's not like Oprah like went out on a limb with this segment, right? Yeah. There's also there, the defense calls various other economists who say that like prices of beef had actually been falling for a while. And they, they call this guy to do this sort of like rapid fire questions of like, isn't it true that demand in Asia was falling at that time? And isn't it true that there was more supply coming out of slaughterhouses at that time? Like there's all these kind of supply and demand things that again, like normal people never really think about. But like all of these things are kind of what these prices are really based on is like yeah, supply yeah, and yeah. demand, like kind of intrinsic factors. Yeah. And they're like, well, there's all this kind of other stuff happening at the time. And it's it's really hard to put all of this at the feet of Oprah. I, I agree with you. I think that, like, she had something to do with it. Like, the reputation of beef fell. But there were also, like, children dying in the United Kingdom yeah, yeah, from yeah, eating yeah, fucking yeah. beef. Yeah. So there was also, like, enough panic in the population at large that, like, yeah, if people – if children are dying from eating something, people are going to stop eating it for a while. And, like, I get that that sucks for your industry and, like, it's unfair – but, like, you can't blame any one media figure for that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I feel similarly, honestly, about the, like, it feels like there's been an uptick in the last few years 
in people like holding Oprah personally responsible for like Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil mm. and all of that kind of stuff. Absolutely. She played an influential role there and there is some like accountability to be had there, yeah. but not more than there is for those guys themselves. Yeah, exactly. She's like yeah. a huge cultural force and like, absolutely. There's more to talk about here, but again, like, the degree to which people like come after her personally for yeah. the sort of like big cultural waves that sometimes she starts and sometimes she rides, you know, mm -hmm. seems disproportionate to me. And also, even under this lower standard, they still have to prove that Oprah's statements and Howard Lyman's statements were false and that they knew that they were false. Mm. So that's a pretty fucking high bar, right? And if you look at the actual statements that they're accusing Oprah and Howard of saying, you know, Oprah says it stopped me cold from eating another burger. Well, that's not a factual statement. False. No, it didn't. I saw you eat yeah. beef on your show. We talked last episode about how, like, opinions are protected. And then Howard Lyman's, you know, he says this disease could make AIDS look like the common cold. Well, that's a prediction about the future. That, that, that's like me saying like, well, if self-driving cars become normal, lots of bikers are going to get murdered in traffic, which is fucking true, by the way. But also like that that's an opinion. That's my prediction of the future. That's not a fact. It's very obvious from the structure of that, that like it's it's an opinion. Well, and also it's a figure of speech, right? X yeah, will yeah, yeah, make yeah, yeah. Y look like Z. Yeah. He's not giving it enough legs for you to like have a factual statement to debunk. Right. This feels a little bit like um in courtroom dramas when they'll like have a witness on the stand and be like, didn't you say you'd do anything to be on this TV yeah, show? Yeah, 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 yeah. And like it's treated as this big smoking gun moment. And I'm like, honestly, like I said I would kill for a grilled cheese yesterday. Like yeah, people don't say stuff. let's not. It sort of feels like the same thing with Howard's claim that the US is treating this like a public relations issue, just like Britain did. Mm. You could say that that's like closer to a factual claim than I'll never eat beef again. But it also very firmly falls into the category of like analysis to me. Like it's not a straightforwardly factual claim. Yeah. And it's also not straightforwardly false. Mm. Like one of the things that Howard mentioned on the Oprah show is that the meat industry instituted a voluntary ban on putting brains and spines in these like protein patty cakes. But the U.S. government didn't make it mandatory. And what he's saying is that the U.S. government is treating this like a PR issue, not a threat to human health. And like maybe you disagree with that or maybe you would put it differently, but it's not just like a clear cut factual statement and it's not in a clear cut way wrong. Yeah. Oprah talks later about how her entire strategy was basically making this a trial about free speech. Right. They, they talked about like the slippery slope. If if my show gets busted for asking questions about the safety of beef, think about all of the other shows that will have this huge chilling effect throughout the entire journalism industry. So in Kitty Kelly's biography, she has a description of Oprah testifying. She says, after repetitive questioning, she leaned into the microphone and in a commanding voice said, I provide a forum for people to express their opinions. We're allowed to do this in the United States of America. I come from a people who have struggled and died in order to have a voice in this country, and I refuse to be muzzled. And like, that's a strong argument. Yeah, it totally is. And also, that's like a strength of sort of speech in her own defense that you yeah. don't often hear from Oprah, right? Like yeah. she'll tackle issues that way. She'll do all kinds of stuff. But like, maybe this is just like a sign of my like age and generation, but I don't remember hearing Oprah talk in those terms about herself. She also says, this is also from the Kitty Kelly biography. When she was asked about her integrity, she said, I am a black woman in America, having gotten here believing in a power greater than myself. I cannot be bought. I answer to the spirit of God that lives in us all. Mm. She said her influence was not enough to drive Americans away from beef. If I had that kind of power, she said, I'd go on the air and heal people. This is a tricky one because she is like extraordinarily influential at this yeah. point in her life and career. But again, to trace all of this sort of like industry-wide impact to back to just her is bonkers. I think that she's she's fundamentally making like kind of a chicken shit defense throughout the trial. Yeah. She keeps saying like, well, I'm not a journalist. Like you can't, 
you can't expect me to have the the same standards as like a sort of traditional journalist. Like I'm an entertainment talk show. And then she also hides behind this like extremely Gwyneth defense of like, I'm just asking questions. That is chicken shit. Oprah has huge influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Whether yeah, or not yeah, you yeah, say, yeah. go out and buy this book, please. If you say this book is good, people are going to go buy the fucking book, yeah, right? Yeah, if you yeah, say yeah, beef yeah. is bad, people are going to stop buying beef. Like come the fuck on, right? But then also you don't want to have a legal regime where anytime you say driving a Honda sucks and then like fucking Honda sues you. Yeah. <laughs> and so if that becomes the legal standard, then like the chilling effect would be profound, right? If you just can't even, as much as I hate to use the term, ask questions about whether a product is harming us. So it's like Oprah should not have done this, but also the cattleman should not have done this either. This is an ESH situation. Michael Infowars Hobbs just asking questions. I know, just, <laughs> I, I think it's important to be able to ask the tough questions. It's tricky because it's like an argument that like Fox News makes I too, know, right? I to be it. like, it's not news, it's opinion. I know, I hate it. In this it. case, I take her point about the sort of chilling effect on journalism. And I don't think that's wrong. Yeah. Like journalists yeah. are historically not the most moneyed among us. Mm -hmm. So if you take on a particularly rich or powerful industry, they can file suit against you and just wait until you run out of money or yeah. will to yeah. fight it. Right. They yeah. can just drown you in lawsuit and motions and everything. So the trial is very weird because weeks before the verdict, it effectively ends. Huh. To recap, the Texas statute says the information states or implies that a perishable food product is not safe for consumption by the public. So this is what the entire trial has been resting on. So after the prosecution lays out its case, Oprah's defense files a motion to dismiss. Mm -hmm. My understanding is this is like fairly common that defense teams would be like, we all saw how shitty that case was. Let's let's get this whole thing out of here. Yeah. And so based on this motion to dismiss, the judge rules that beef is not perishable. I'm sorry, what the <laughs> fuck? It's so fucking weird. So as we discussed at length last episode, because I was foreshadowing, <laughs> all of these veggie libel laws are based on the argument that existing libel laws might be fine for the Gwyneth Paltrow's of the world, but because our products are perishable, we should get more protection from defamatory claims. Yeah. And so a huge amount of like the pretrial motions, the sort of interstitial things within the trial are arguing over, is cattle a perishable product? Because if it's not perishable, then this law doesn't apply. Michael, this went from being one of the most fascinating topics <laughs> we've gotten into to... The biggest pile of, like, brain rot nonsense. It's so fucking weird. So the judge in the case rules in this motion to dismiss that cattle is not perishable because if the value of cattle falls precipitously because Oprah made a TV show about how cattle is bad, you can still sell your product, right? You can, she says, like, you can sell it to, like, hot dog makers. Like, you can grind up your, like, old diseased cows and, like, put them in hot dogs. Right. Exhibit A, jerky. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The, the, the phrase that they use is it's not beyond marketability for a limited period of time. Right, which the entire law rests on. I am so sorry. This is like the cannibal hamsters. I My brain can't move on. Cattle is like straightforwardly perishable. But then when you think about it, I guess everything is perishable. Humans are perishable. Yeah, long enough <laughs> yeah. time goes by. It's all fucking perishable. So they were hoisted by their own petard. They, they used this like fake thing about how like, oh, we're perishable, so we don't count to get these laws passed. But then the judges are like, well, according to your own bullshit ass law... Your product isn't perishable. Okay. So as a result of this motion to dismiss, the trial then gets kicked down to ordinary business disparagement laws. Mm. So under this law, they not only have to prove that Howard Lyman and Oprah's statements were false, they knew they were false. They also have to prove that they said them anyway out of malice. Oprah and Howard Lyman hate these specific cattle ranchers <laughs> so much 
that they're going to state a knowingly false claim. I like the idea that Oprah has like a red yarn bulletin board somewhere yeah. in her, like one of her 12 homes. Yeah. The cattle industry, it's time. And we start with these small fries. Yeah. And they, you know, as we mentioned last episode, at no point did she mention Texas or obviously these specific people in her episode. She was just talking about beef. So it's just like a, a frivolous lawsuit then becomes like triple frivolous. Yeah. So the trial goes on for a couple more weeks and then we finally get to the verdict and it's like a unanimous verdict and everybody's just like, no, the, the claims yeah. are not false. <laughs> like whether or not they knew they were false, you, you haven't even proved that they're fucking false. I mean, listen, this this is the Gwyneth Paltrow ski trial where it's like everyone's yeah. watching with bated breath and then at the end everyone is of course like, no, he said he didn't even see what happened. He was just like, I think you're wrong. Like, yeah, that's it's just not... like a huge fucking waste of everybody's time, yeah. ultimately. Like, what what are you doing? So there's a very weird thing on the courthouse steps afterwards where everybody kind of declares victory. So Oprah cries in the courtroom. Like, it's clear this is very emotional. It was not clear that she was going to win. Like, it, I, I can see how this would be like a hugely anxiety-producing thing. Mm. She then goes out on the courtroom steps and says, free speech not only lives, it rocks. So she's casting this as like a free speech trial. Mm. The cattlemen also on the steps say that, you know, we have won because we've firmly established that U.S. beef is safe. And not perishable. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that the cattlemen are just like factually wrong. Yeah. The mad cow thing was kind of already over at this point. The beef industry had already bounced back. What were you even trying to prove? Well, and the... by this standard, <laughs> American beef, to your point, was always sort of, quote unquote, safe in this way. I feel like the real legacy of this case is that like way more Americans knew at this point that they grind up cows and feed them to other cows than did yes. before. <laughs> Which like, that's not great PR for your industry. The fact that, you know, you're fighting the mad cow stuff, but like what people are grossed out by is that look in that way the real winner here is howard lyman yeah yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah this has taken yeah. a one-hour oprah show and spun it into years of publicity yeah, yeah, yeah. for the guy who couldn't stop talking about feeding cows to cows or whatever like yeah, yeah, yeah. chef's kiss incredible also uh, a little lyman epilogue i watched a bunch of youtube videos of like where he's given talks where he talks about this according to him oprah's producers asked him to pay them back for her legal fees of five million dollars <laughs> <laughs> which is so fucked yeah that's fucked like, up no the, it also i mean who knows if this is true or whether oprah knew about this or whatever but it it, it does reveal like the fundamental misunderstanding of this that like oprah it's not that he said it it's that you aired it right totally you found him invited him on your show didn't edit out Right. The parts where he said a bunch of shit that was like scaring the public. You like to put all of the responsibility on him for saying it and none of the like steps of the process in which you amplified it and like platformed it. Like, come the fuck on. You're you're way more responsible for this. Look, if you are a very famous, wealthy person, you are never disputing the check. Yeah. <laughs> There's then a series of appeals. I've read all of the appeals. They're like they're more available than the original court documents. Every single time they appeal it, like every district judge, whatever, is just like, what? No. <laughs> like, this is obviously like, what the fuck are you talking about? These are not false claims. Yeah. These are not like libelous. A lot of them are opinion. This is very well protected by like the First Amendment. <laughs> and we all know beef is like Twinkies. It never goes bad. Cattle live forever. Yeah. Yes. Yes. One of the rejected appeals, the judge says... Stripped to its essentials, the cattleman's complaint is that the dangerous food episode did not present the mad cow issue in the light most favorable to United States beef. It's like, yeah, you guys are mad that, like, you got bad PR. Yeah, totally. Ultimately. And, like, not untrue. It was yeah. not a flattering episode. Yeah. Also not untrue. It wasn't, like, set up with an eye toward fairness or journalistic yeah. integrity in a meaningful way. And, like, that doesn't mean that someone owes you $12 million. But then the really interesting epilogue of this is that because of this decision that cows live forever and the trial getting kicked down to ordinary business disparagement statutes, this wasn't tried under the veggie libel law. This wasn't a test 
of the concept of veggie libel. Mm. So they're all just kind of sitting there boy, oh on the books. Boy, oh boy. I read actually a really interesting article about why they haven't been tested. I think because people are afraid that if you try using them, they'll be struck down on First Amendment grounds. Like they're pretty blatantly unconstitutional, honestly. And so if you use them, they might get overturned. Whereas if you don't use them, you can like use threats of them and like the existence of them to have this chilling effect, oh, which is kind gross. of what they wanted ultimately. Yeah, right? totally. You just have to be more careful if you're talking about an agricultural product in these 13 states than you would for other products. There's only been three cases tried under the veggie label laws. And uh, one was dismissed and two were thrown out. I was going to say, what are the other two? Wait, do you, do you <laughs> this, this was going to be the ending quote. Do you want to read? Do you want to read the paragraph? I do want to read a paragraph. You're going to love this. This is the weirdest fucking thing. Okay. Sending this to you. Quote, a second lawsuit was brought by a group of emu ranchers against Honda Motor Company <laughs> arising from a television commercial for the Honda Civic. Emus versus sedans. In the ad, a young man named Joe drives his Civic to meet with several potential employers about career opportunities. He then talks with a real estate developer who tells him, Joe, let's not call it a pyramid scheme. Just after that, Joe goes to an emu ranch where he and the rancher observe a pen of grazing emus and the rancher says, emu, Joe, it's the pork of the future. A group of ranchers sought suit under the Texas statute. Incredible. I don't think less of emus after this. I think the emus are fine. This group of geckos... <laughs> <laughs> filed suit against Geico. What are we doing here? This is another one where like a judge looked at it for like three minutes and was like, what? No, Get, yeah. go away. This is not a real case. And then we can't have ducks suing Aflac. It's not going <laughs> to happen. <laughs> so that's the kind of like bleak epilogue of the veggie libel laws. The less bleak epilogue of mad cow disease is that like, yeah, it, it has kind of been dealt with. Like it's not really a big deal in britain anymore like we know the cause of it it's been addressed it's not you know we're not getting cases anywhere near like we used to there was actually a case of it discovered in the u.s in 2003 again there's kind of these structural elements in the u.s beef sector that kind of keep it from becoming like a massive outbreak they found another case in 2005 another case in 2006 another case in 2012 so every once in a while these things do pop up in various countries but it hasn't really spread throughout the system. And there's been a couple other cases of mad cow in humans, like very isolated cases, but it's fewer than 200 people worldwide total. And like 170 of those were like the original outbreak in Britain. Yeah. So, I, you know, you can't say the risk is zero. Like, you know, th this isn't something that is like this will never happen again or whatever. But like this is an extremely, extremely rare thing to happen. Like you're more likely to get it just as you age randomly than you are to get it from beef at this point. Are they still feeding cows to cows in the UK or in the US? Is that still happening? My understanding is they do still do this, but they remove the brain and the spine, which is where most of the, like, the mad cow stuff is. Remove. Tiny repeating machine strikes again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>